You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. Masterclass. Our masterclass on U.S. gun laws and the Second Amendment. And then later on, we bring in the conversation on gun laws in South Africa. Weigh in on your side on what your thoughts are, not just on what is happening in the U.S., but also here in South Africa. Are you pro-guns or are you anti-guns? And I'll share with you before the end of the show on which of the two I am. But let's welcome our guest that is with us for this masterclass, U.S. Foreign Policy. Policy expert and associate editor at Daily Maverick, Brooks Spector. Welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Oh, good afternoon. Good to be with you. It's an important topic and uh, a, 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 a complicated one, more complicated than many people want to realize. Yeah. And, and I want to start by asking, you know, some, some listeners might be thinking to themselves, why are the U.S. gun laws relevant in South Africa? I mean, I've already shared why I think um, this conversation is relevant just in terms of those that are curious as to why it's not just getting resolved. But maybe um, you can share with us, Brooks, as to why you think other countries should be talking about the U.S. gun laws. Well, I, I think in, 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 in a fundamental kind of way, because we live in a world that is, as the cliche goes, interconnected, uh, we have both the opportunity to learn from others' experience as well as to be infected by others' contagions. Mm. Uh, and if the circumstances in the U.S., uh, which is a big country with a lot of people, with a lot of guns, uh, if that helps inform the way other nations respond to their own uh, firearm circumstances, then I think that's to the good. And at the same time, of course, the news media internationally, local news media have basically been filled with, over the last number of, of weeks with uh, stories about and uh, live video footage uh, of the mass shootings, in, in most recently in Buffalo, New York, in upstate New York at a shopping center uh, and at the uh, elementary school, the primary school in uh Uvalde, Texas, and then uh, in years gone by, we tend to forget them, unfortunately. Um, the one in Connecticut, Sandy Hook uh, School, and then in Columbine, Colorado, and on and on and on. And uh, the more our media uh, connects to the world, the more likely it is you'll see this, and many people will be puzzled and some of them may well respond just as you did by saying, he's the president. Why can't he just exactly. fix it? Exactly. Yeah. And it's, um, we'll, we'll get into the details of why can't the president just fix it. But I want to just mention, you know, I, I was remembering as we were preparing for the show that actually many years ago, there was the documentary by Michael Moore called Bowling in Columbine. And I was so hooked to some of the things that, that a film was exploring. For those that haven't had an opportunity to, to watch, the documentary, but it basically um, looks at possible uh, primary causes for the Columbine High School massacre that happened in 1999 and other acts of gun violence. But if we look at this year alone, Brooks, 27 school shootings have taken place so far this year. Maybe right now we're busy talking about the most recent one, but I was not aware it was 27. Well, not all of them have had the uh, the mass horrific effect that mm. the, the most recent uh, I mean, a, a a a mass shooting is anything over 
two people, obviously, and yeah. anybody killed as well as, uh, you know, that that's sad and horrific, but it isn't always at the same scale. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the commentators who I was reading uh, pointed out that in X number of weeks time, un- unfortunately, but probably inevitably, we will be talking about this in another school or another church or another synagogue or another temple or mosque or shopping mall, uh, because in the absence of some more basic legal or societal changes, uh, this is what does happen. And we are, quote unquote, powerless to prevent it. And the uh, the response by some Republican congressmen and politicians generally that to say to the families uh, who've lost their children, our thoughts and our prayers go with you. Uh, that's very nice and all that, but mm. uh, and we're glad that they feel bad about it. Uh, but of course, that doesn't solve the problem one iota. And that's what we really need to talk about. What gives this particular momentum uh to the in the United States, um, I mean, after all, Canada is not all that different a society. Australia is not all that different a society, uh, or New Zealand, or Norway, or Britain, or half dozen other places. Um, and yet, uh, the American experience is one of rather many more of these things, uh, and the one tends to infect the next because people who are already unstable and have a fascination for guns and have fantasies in their minds or itches they cannot scratch about a religion or a race, sometimes, quite sadly, feel empowered in a very perverse way Mm. to follow in that pattern. And of course, then we can get back further into the historical purposes and the basis for society and uh, what you've uh, labeled this conversation, the Second Amendment, which probably mystifies some people. And we have to unpack that a little bit for you if you want. Can we take a step back? So before we get to the part where, you know, we are answering the question, why can't the president fix it? Which, you know, will probably need a mini masterclass just in terms of how America operates with the different states, unlike South Africa, where the law in, in one province applies in all provinces. But let's look a little bit at the history of America and how it came about that it seems from my perspective and probably many South Africans perspectives that Americans love guns. They just love guns so much that you could walk into a supermarket or a Walmart and it's so easy to get a weapon and it's just the absolute norm to us. It just seems so extreme. How did America get to this point? Well, let's put down one marker at least. Um, the uh, the number of people in the U.S. who actually have guns uh, is rather less than than we think. It's about there are a lot of guns in the country, and estimates somewhere between 300 million and 400 million in a population of 350 million plus. But a uh, majority of people don't actually have guns. Mm. Uh, and, and in fact, the um, I, I personally within family and friends in the U.S., I can only think of one person among all of them who might conceivably have one. Mm. Uh, And, you know, that would be true of many people, but it would be less true 
if you lived in some of the states where the gun culture is much stronger and more rooted in things. But to get back to the beginnings of this, remember, it's a, it, it is in large measure a settler society. People migrated there uh, from the early 1600s onward. Um, and the, uh, the reality, as well as the myth, uh, was that people needed guns for self-protection from uh, wild animals, to provide food for their table, to deal with the Native Americans, and then subsequently uh, to fight for their independence against Britain in the late 1700s. And if that's true, this mystique about firearms, uh, think about classic films. Think about something like uh, High Noon or Shane, uh, where the myth of the, the strong good man uh, protects society against mm. bad people mm. or you know, animals or whatever it might be. Uh, and that lends itself to the idea that to be a real man, you have to be able to do such a thing. Mm. Um, and if you think of this as the, as the settlement moves to the West, there's always a new part of the country being explored, settled, and uh, people are replacing the people who were there before and so forth. And much of this was, in fact, although not all of it, much of it was done at the uh, uh, with people who carried weapons. Mm. And when the constitution of the country was first drafted back in the late 1700s, um, some of the states would not join it. Some of the former colonies, then states, would not join the new nation until there were specific rights enumerated within the Constitution, what we call the first 10 amendments. The second, the, the first one deals with the right of free speech and assembly and the free practice of, of religion of your choice or none at all, uh, freedom of the press. The second, though, is a slightly more problematic one because it reads, if I, it's very short, I can quote it for you, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, mm -hmm. the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, what that meant at the time was that the various colonial militias had had a significant hand in uh, achieving independence from Britain. But over time, this militia, state by state, has evolved into another part of the national government, effectively, the National Guard, which is organized state by state, but when there's a national emergency, it's called up and it's the regular army or navy, just like anything else. But over the years, um, more conservative members of government, Congress especially, and then increasingly some members of the judiciary, have read that ignoring that first part about well-regulated militia, i.e. the state militias, and have focused only on that last phrase, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Mm. And that merges together with that mystique about the man defending his home against the wild bears or the, the British or the Sioux Indians or whatever it might be, and the bad guys who want to steal from them. And this has... Even though the country is now largely urban, 
it has morphed into, in many people's minds, a way of protecting the ownership of guns without reservation, without limitation, and without restrictions. Now, there's a big difference between carrying a musket in the 1700s and carrying a semi-automatic assault rifle. Mm. Uh, you use a musket, you can kill one person at a time and you have to reload and all the rest of this, which is how things work. But a, but a semi-automatic assault rifle means in, in a matter of minutes, you can kill a dozen, two dozen people. Mm. That's a very, very different thing. And it is not clear that the that the Supreme Court cases that have been decided about uh, the right to bear arms are, in fact, sorry, that's my cat screaming. For some no reason problem. There. I was wondering if there was a baby in the back. <laughs> there's, there's a little temperamental lilac point Tonkinese cat that suddenly <laughs> out of nowhere showed up and wanted attention. Go away now. Stop. Um, the um, what it means also, of course, is that and you alluded to it in your first comments, the country is not a unitary state in the same way as, say, South Africa is in terms of the law. So each state has evolved a different set of laws. So that, for example, in Texas now, unfortunately, by my by my lights, um, an 18-year-old boy uh, can walk into a store and buy a rifle or two, and ammunition sufficient to start a small war uh, with basically no restrictions or uh, restraints upon him. And in Texas now, according to the most recent law, you are allowed pretty much to carry a weapon anywhere you want uh, without uh, restraint, without restrictions. You can't do that in New York State. You can't do that in California. Mm. You can't do that in New Jersey or Massachusetts. But in Colorado, it's rather more similar to Texas uh, than the other places we've just mentioned. And one of the cases that went to the Supreme Court, Heller versus, or the District of Columbia versus Heller, which was uh, uh, dealing with a, uh, a gun a gun registration law in the, in the city of Washington, D.C., which is separate from any of the other states, um, the court found, um, or at least it thought it found, that there was no way that the city could require registration and restrictions of the ownership of handguns. The problem is both of the senior clerks to the judges who wrote, the justices who wrote the majority opinion and the minority opinion have now said, wait a minute, that isn't what either of the sides were thinking. Mm -hmm. So some of this regular, some of this uh, court decision business isn't exactly based on the way people thought it might be. Um, it might be decided. So where we are now is that you have a hodgepodge of laws and regulations, state by state by state. Uh, you have some states where it's rather difficult and where you have to go through some hoops to get it uh, registered and so forth, and other states where it's pretty much wide open and you can do what you want. And the real problem comes about sometimes when you buy a weapon in one state um, where you uh, can do that, and then you travel someplace else and use it there because there are no borders between states. Nobody checks your car. Uh, you know, nobody frisks you at the highway intersection between the two state lines. So we have a, in the U.S., we have a problem. Uh, and one more item that I'll add for you before I overwhelm you with all of this is that 
the something called the gun lobby, that is the uh, the National Rifle Association, mm. and a couple of other organizations, gun manufacturers, and a number of Republican, largely Republican congressmen and senators who very strongly feel that that right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed is the key phrase. Now, they're not doing it because the the NRA, the National Rifle Association, has passed them a brown envelope and said, if you'll only pay attention to our thing, uh, we'll be happy. It's because there's a natural congruence between their attitudes and ideas and the current version of the National Rifle Association. Uh, They agree that they should prevent any and all restrictions. And that makes it very difficult to get a national law passed. You could probably pass it in the House of Representatives, some kinds of restrictions, registrations, uh, prior checks, you know, full, uh, sorry, uh, full disclosure kinds of checks, whether or not you're a mental patient or you're a felon, um, or red flag uh, notice, that is, if you are already pointed to by somebody as somebody who's now become seriously unstable. Um, But you won't get it passed in the Senate because enough Republicans will refuse to allow the debate to come to a conclusion. It would be very difficult to get legislation like that passed and then sent on to President Biden or President whoever uh, to sign it. And uh, there we are. And so we are stuck with the with the terrible belief that in a couple of weeks or months, we'll be talking about a new horror. So then I have to ask you the question, um, and I think you've explained it um, in a way that really, really uh, paints a picture of the politics behind it. But the question that I have to ask is when we look at these, the very significant of these uh, mass shootings, what would you say? the most common factor is in all of these because my observation and and i have not taken the time to study each and every one of them but it usually looks like it is some young white boy who seems to be facing some kind of mental challenges and that young white boy would get treated significantly better than an individual who in in the u.s is most likely to be a young black man carrying you know, a tiny amount of cannabis, for example. Well, I mean, cannabis doesn't figure into the equation. And in a lot of states, it's been pretty well decriminalized. But the the heart of your question speaks to the nature of the person and what about them that, that gets us to these terrible events. Uh, you're, I think you're right about the nature of a young and uh, disturbed or angry or anger barely repressed man, young man, somewhere between the ages of 16 and early, early 20s, uh, most often white, although in the in the most recent case in Texas, he was also Hispanic American, mm. exactly the same as the people who he killed. Um, and I, I think the most common denominator, it's going to sound simplistic, but I think here, here we are, the most common denominator is the ability to have a lethal weapon in their hands mm-hmm. without much way of restrictions. If you had posited the same question about people who ran around with uh, sabers or, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, pick another, you know, butter knives, mm-hmm. uh, we wouldn't have the same body count. We wouldn't have the same national horror. Uh, and 
the problem, as some people uh, explain it, uh, is that the country's mental health screening uh, is not being done very well, and it's not very accessible for people who are in the throes of those derangements or heading in that direction. Uh, but there are also people, and I'm not sure this makes sense to me, but there are people who say we have to harden, that is, make more secure places like schools and shopping malls and, you know, whatever else you want. The, but they're beginning to talk about things that, that seem both repugnant and crazy. Uh, let's make sure that all the teachers are armed. Mm. Or let's make sure all the students have Kevlar uh, school bags. Kevlar is that material that goes in body armor, you know, the lightweight stuff that does, in fact, stop bullets. Now, if you imagine just for a moment uh, a situation. Can I just ask Brooks if you can just pause that so I can go to news because I don't want okay. to rush the point that you'd like to drive because I also uh, when we come back want to talk about the active shooter drills that are happening in American schools and there's an advert that went around about back to school time and that was touching on you know obviously the kids are speaking about my new socks my new this but the visuals are of an active uh, shooting taking place in a school with these kids that are so young running around and it really paints that uh, picture as to the reality of what some of the states and uh, the schools uh, are facing but we'll continue this master class um, on u.s gun laws as well as the second amendment and then we'll wrap up the conversation by touching on um, guns and what is required in our country to have one and what the laws say but also you can share with us if you are pro-gun or anti-gun and why we'll continue our master class with with Brooke Spector, U.S. foreign policy expert and associate editor at Daily Maverick, 011-8307-02. We'll be taking your calls with any of the questions that you have on this masterclass. It is just after 2 th- 702 Masterclass. We are chatting to Brooke Spector, U.S. foreign policy expert and associate editor at Daily Maverick on this masterclass on U.S. gun laws and the Second Amendment. Um, many people still don't understand, and I'm one of them, why it is that the president can tweet about, you know, sending condolences to those that have died, the families of those that have died in the mass shooting, but he himself cannot do anything about it. And Brooks has been um, explaining. Now, Brooks, let's pick up on the on the part around um, some of the remedies that have been proposed, especially in schools, like saying that teachers should also be carrying arms. I'm aware that there are active shooter drills. And my initial reaction is like, how is that the experience that a child should be having at school is practicing for shooters to come in instead of preventing shooters having access to weapons? Well, I mean, in, in, in short, you're, you're quite right to, to point to this as a, as a kind of very perverse, dark clickbait uh, in, you know, in a tangible kind of way. I'll see if I can't get through that classroom. Um, but more, I mean, more to the point, I mean, this, the, the actual securitization and mil, almost militarization of classrooms just strikes me as, as bizarre, missing the main point. Uh, the main point is there are people wandering around who aren't, who, who haven't been checked for anything and whose gun is not registered with any known government entity and who clearly haven't had any training, um, who are on the loose and who are uh, aiming to do 
uh, ill, th- you know, do do harm to other people. Mm. You know what it reminded me of when I first heard about it. Uh, the comments calling for such things mm. it reminded me of all those silly drills I did as a child uh, to duck under my desk in the event of a nuclear attack on the city I was living in, mm. as if my wooden school desk was going to prevent me from being fried by a, 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 a 10 kiloton uh, nuclear bomb delivered in the vicinity of Philadelphia. Uh, I mean, it, it's got the problem backwards, is what I'm getting at. I mean, solving uh, the nuclear dilemma was not dependent on all the children in my school ducking under their school desk. Uh, ending the gun plague in the U.S. isn't going to be solved by having every child encased in Kevlar and every teacher handed a, a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber pistol uh, simply because can you visualize what happens in a classroom in the chaos of a young man bursting in with a rifle, threatening to shoot people, and teachers and janitors and cafeteria workers and uh, gardeners and who knows who else uh, come rushing at them with their guns drawn and wildfire in, in, occurs and then we have more casualties. I mean, it's the solution is... That the, that's not the solution to the problem. It simply creates a new problem. Completely. And I'm wondering, and, and obviously the, the question I'm going to ask you is more of your personal view. Um, outside, sure. you know, considering where the U.S. is at in terms of the laws and how things are trying to be changed, what do you think should be done in the meantime? Because the mental health ex- aspect is one part of it. And at the same time, I'm also very reluctant to involve the mental health aspect so much in this conversation because there are many people suffering with mental health issues um, that aren't behaving that way. So it almost paints people who are suffering depression or are being bullied and, and all of those um, that have the stories that have come out of the shooters that were young and trouble, troubled kids. So there's that part, but then there's the part of the access to weapons. So in the meantime, while parents are pulling children out of school because they are terrified and doing the various things that they are doing, what do you think should be done in the meantime? No, it's a good it's a it's a good question and it's a fair one. I mean, it's no there's no point in simply criticizing what is without saying what I would do next. Mm. Uh, it, it, the the first thing is I I do think uh, that the president has to make a much stronger national uh, effort at a discussion guided something like what we're doing today uh, on this very multi part problem. But the next thing is something that uh, the senator from Connecticut, uh, Senator Murphy, has been trying to do for some time. Mur- uh, he, of course, was a senator from the state where the, the Sandy Hook uh, killings took place, what was it, 10 years ago. Um, he, he's trying to get a whole series of piecemeal efforts pushed forward. In other words, we can't get the whole salami. Let's at least get a couple of slices of it at first. Mm. And one of them is a much tighter national uh, uh, system for checking names against registers of former felons and so forth. Uh, the second is pushing for a red fl- a, a, a national red flag system that's comprehensive in which 
if you notice, and if you're a professional in one way or another, and you notice that John is behaving very strangely and talking about killing people and getting guns, and uh, he should be reported, not necessarily to be arrested, but to have some sort of intervention. He is that percentage of those people with psychological problems who are heading down that direction. Mm. And you're quite right. All people who are depressed are not going to start killing people in a, in a, in a supermarket. That's that, that's crazy to say that. Um, some people are starting to think in those terms. Um, the next step would have to be to push for uh, a ban, push for a stopping all sales of these semi automatic assault rifles. They have no place in civilization and society that is not the military. They're designed as military weapons. Why someone would want to buy one to shoot deer, uh, to defend their house, uh, to pretend that they are strong, that's crazy. Uh, the next slice at this has to be uh, a mandatory system that if you're going to buy a gun, you have to go through some training. It doesn't prevent you from buying it, but you have to actually have at least as much training, say, as if you get a driver's license to drive a car. Mm. I mean, you know, I ended my article this morning on this by saying, you know, uh, you have to be more vetted and more checked to be a dental hygienist or a barber than you are in many states to buy a semiotic rifle. That seems crazy. Yeah. So uh, Chris Murphy has has a point, he has to try to do this, but there has to be the national conversation to get there. And yes, of course, police forces have to be much better attuned to the way in which they deal with such events when they do begin to happen, not as happened in Texas, to wait until they have more reinforcements and uh, who knows what they were waiting for. They waited 90 minutes, which uh, seemed... I heard that and I thought... I think I saw a story somewhere that one of the parents of the children, um, they were all obviously holding parents back because they could not understand why uh, the police officers were just not entering the school. Um, apparently, one of the parents entered through a side window and was able to take their child uh, safely out of the school. But um, being a parent myself, I would probably have done the same thing. And um, what you're mentioning about the training, I think, is critical because now this is happening uh, more often. And while we are waiting for the laws to hopefully change in the various states, that the response to an armed, um, an active shooting needs to be quicker. Uh, I think it is absolutely terrible that the responsibility should be on children that are tiny having to figure out how to protect themselves when there's actual law enforcement. But what I'd like to do, Brooks, at the moment is just to invite into the conversation criminologist uh, lecturer at Stellenbosch University, Dr. Guy Lamb. So we can just touch on, you know, what the current state is with guns in South Africa. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Good afternoon, everyone, and good afternoon to your listeners. Thank you so much. So yesterday, just to um, share with all the listeners I've been saying, I would share my views, what I shared with my producer on whether I'm pro or anti-guns. And basically what I said is that in general I'm anti-guns because I feel that, you know, less harm can be done with guns being so freely available. 
our challenge, of course, in South Africa is there's so many um, uh, weapons that are freely available on the black market. And for as long as that is the case, then I am pro-weapons because if I'm to call my security company because there are people with weapons in my home, I would hope that the security company is arriving with weapons or else how are they going to defend me? So I'm sitting on both sides of the fence at the moment on the basis of the fact that in South Africa, I'm sure every every listener knows one person who would know somebody that could get them a gun without a serial number. A doctor? Uh, sorry. Yes. Sure. How do you want me to? How do you want no, me to? No, just uh, <laughs> no. So let me. Yes. Yeah, so let me let me ask you this. Just in terms of where we are at. Um, there is the part where we're all of the understanding and many people probably, if they weren't aware, saw it during Oscar Pistorius' trial that for you to get a weapon, you actually have to go through a particular process. If you want a gun, you need to get a license and that includes psych evaluations and things like that. Well, not necessarily psych evaluations. So the, the, the law in South Africa is called the Firearms Control Act and it's been around since early 2000, so we're going on close on 20 years that the law's been around for, and it amended something called the Arms and Ammunition Act, which was in like a 19, late 1960s act, which had lots of problems and challenges with it and was quite quite a, a loose firearm law. It was quite easy to acquire a firearm in that period, especially under apartheid for white people. Um, but the, the act that's in place at the moment is does have a, quite a few measures in place if you're looking to acquire a firearm for a variety of reasons. So, Obviously, in South Africa, you've got professional hunters, we have professional sports shooters, and we have members of the public who want to get firearms for self-protection. And, of course, there is the private security industry, which are, you know, uses of firearms as well. But generally, the rule applies to everyone, but namely that you have to go through a process to show that you're a competent and capable and good person. And so you have to, you know, essentially apply for a firearm license, but before you can be granted a firearm license, you have to kind of go through a competency process, which you have to write an exam to demonstrate you understand the law. You have to go and, you know, kind of to a an accredited institution, which will kind of vet you to see if you can actually fire the firearm or you have to go to training. Um, and then, of course, the police are supposed to do a background check. And this is a big issue within the U.S., within certain states. Background checks are not permitted, where in South Africa they are. Um, so the sense of, you know, how the law is supposed to work is police are supposed to determine are you a fit and proper person, that you don't have a violent background, a violent history. So in, certainly in the, how it's supposed to happen is the police are supposed to obviously visit your premises, determine whether you've got a safe, um, interview members of your household, you know, if necessary, interview neighbours. And that's, that's, you know, happens in theory, but it doesn't happen all the time because it's a very time-consuming process. Um, and, of course, if you kind of pass all of these, uh, you know, tests in a way and these kind of vetting processes, then you can be granted a firearm license. Um, but, of course, it's a very cumbersome process and um, so there's been lots of legal challenges around it. So, in a sense, we, the police actually, in terms of legal rulings, um, have to, you know, conclude this process within 90 days. Um, and if they haven't concluded in 90 days, they have to issue the license. So that's the kind of the, the, the kind of short and the long and short of, of firearms laws in South Africa, but I'm happy to answer any other questions. So just with regards to competency, um, in my understanding, and maybe saying psych evaluation is not like a whole, uh, you know, a psychiatrist coming in and giving a whole assessment, but can we just quickly touch on competency? So does that mean they ask you a series of, of questions 
to assess if um, either, you know, you would react spontaneously with a weapon in your hand or what are the questions asking and how do they measure competency? I mean, the competency is really around your understanding of the act. The competency is about can you handle your, a firearm safely so it's not a danger to other people that you're not going to, you know, kind of, you know, kind of hurt yourself or hurt others because you don't know how to handle the weapon. So that's largely what the competency is about, the competency about the use of the weapon. The background check is they don't do psych evaluations, but they will obviously do a, a criminal records check. So, for example, if you have been convicted of a violent crime or there is evidence that you, you know, you know, kind of have a problem with substance abuse, um, whether it be drugs or alcohol, um, or if you, for example, have protection orders against you, um, around, you know, being you know, convicted of, of crimes relating to aggression, you know, you have assaulted people, the chances of getting a firearm are incredibly low. Um, so, I mean, that's usually immediately they will, they will reject the firearm application if the criminal records jump out. Um, in terms of the background check is, you know, what happens and in, in, in what's supposed to happen is if the police visit your place of residence and, you know, household members say, oh, listen, this guy, this person this, um, is, is, you know, quite a violent person, loses their temper, gets drunk a lot, you know, then on the basis of that background check, then the application is likely to be rejected. Uh, by the Central Firearm Registry. So they don't do the psych evaluations, but then in a way kind of do a sort of a, a character assessment through mm-hmm. interviews. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen as regularly as it should do because it's a very time-consuming process. And when you're getting like close to anywhere between 100 and 200,000 new firearm applications a year, it means that please don't have the necessary resources and time to do it as consistently as they should do. And then in the event that you are granted a license, but something changes along the way, like, um, you know, your mental stability, for example, or you suddenly become abusive and now you're threatening your girlfriend, what is the process that your license can be taken away from you? Yes, I mean, in those kind of cases, if you declare unfit to possess a firearm, namely that you, you know, are convicted of a violent crime or there's a kind of a protection order against you because of, um, you know, your violent actions and the magistrate deems that so, then the police are compelled to remove that weapon from you and therefore you're declared unfit that you cannot have a licensed or legal firearm. So, Brooks, listening to what um, Doctor has to say about South Africa, do you think that um, the U.S. or at least some of the states that are struggling at the moment could practically reach a point where a process like this could be implemented? And if it were, do you think it would be followed? Because as Guy is saying is that, yes, this is what the process is supposed to be, but it isn't always uh, followed as uh, stringently. Well, a couple of observations very quickly, because I know you're running out of time. Um, to put in some sort of process like that, uh, I think if it were to work properly and smoothly uh, and administered fairly and effectively, uh, it, it would be a very good thing if it could happen in the U.S. Uh, there would be innumerable legal challenges to it, going back to the Heller ruling and the words of the Second Amendment and a whole series of other uh, uh, responses uh, and challenges to it, but it it has in many ways uh, some of the same elements of the kinds of things that Senator Murphy has been pro- proposing now for for years, as well as a number of other people. And 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 just a sort of a flip comment. This is one of these things with, where South Africa could easily send a delegation to the U.S. to teach to teach this system. Mm.
Mm, mm. Um, there are a couple of messages that are coming here. Um, Guy, um, the message says, my son Joshua was shot and killed in January last year. The owner of the firearm has a number of criminal records, including one which involved violence, yet he still managed to get his firearm license renewed. It turns out that the firearms were never kept in a safe and his 17-year-old son had access to them and shot Josh. SAPS mm-hmm. didn't follow up on criminal records when processing firearm licenses. Had the act been followed, Josh might be alive today. Um, a doctor, can you very quickly share with us, you know, if you just say what are the challenges in the system? Well, I mean, maybe just in response to that, I mean, certainly the, 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 the person who sent that message certainly has a, a lot of, uh, has the potential to take this to court because there have been previous cases where the police did not do due diligence, did not follow the act properly and actually were sued. So certainly this person has grounds to sue the Minister of Police. Um, in terms of, you know, what's happening in South Africa and the challenges are around the licensing system. We have an electronic system that's not working properly. Uh, fortunately, the new police commissioner is prioritizing sorting this out. The central firearm registry that deals with these things is, you know, not working in an optimal space at all. Um, but, you know, the kind of issue is it, it needs to be resolved because it's actually been, there's been some corruption where we've seen, you know, criminals and gangsters getting access to firearms and that's something that really needs to be attended to. So we have, you know, really good firearm laws to deal with firearm violence, but we have many challenges within the police, which are part of a broader problem of, Mm. Of, of kind of peace management at the moment. Which means, I guess, the issues, you know, on both fronts in South Africa and in the U.S. are not going to be resolved anytime soon. Uh, for those of you that would like to read the article that was written by Brooks Spector, uh, I will post it on my Twitter at M. But thank you so much to both of our guests. There's so many other things we could have covered, but we ran out of time on this masterclass on U.S. gun laws and the Second Amendment. Our guest, Brooks Spector, U.S. foreign policy expert and associate editor at Daily Maverick as well as Dr. Guy Lamb, criminologist and lecturer at University of Stellenbosch.